Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ashu, and before we get into today's discussion, I encourage you to go to ebmedicine.net and take a look at what's going on there. First, you'll notice that state-specific CME requirements have been added with a map. All you have to do is select your state to view your own CME requirements, and while you're there, you can check out the link to the new interactive pathways. Those are helpful for you at the bedside. And also don't forget that there are three journals available to you on the website and in the mobile app. That's emergency medicine practice, pediatric emergency medicine practice, and evidence-based urgent care. Just a gigantic library of information available to you both on the website and in the mobile app. And now let's dive into today's episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back today. It is me, Sam Ashu, and Dr. T.R. Eckler, excited to be here yet again. Today, we are talking about the June 2023 article in Emergency Medicine Practice titled Hypertensive Emergencies, Guidelines, and Best Practice Recommendations, authored by Dr. Davis, Dr. Hughes, Dr. Pun, and Dr. Goldstein, four authors who did an outstanding job compiling all of the diagnoses that are encompassed under that blanket of hypertensive emergencies. Another one of those large volumes that touches on so many critical things that here we are talking about it in our podcast. But I would tell you this issue is just so timely to what the practice is like right now, because I find that people are having more trouble getting with their primaries. They're stretching their blood pressure meds a little bit longer. And just this week, I've seen multiple patients with maybe a little bit symptomatic hypertension. I saw a seizure patient that had just given birth. And there was a question of, is this preeclampsia? Is this an eclamptic seizure? Is it not? And then at least once a day, I see somebody that is real hypertensive and got that fluid in their lungs. And I'm trying to figure out, is this just their heart? Is it something else? And I thought that this addressed all of those patients perfectly. Not to mention the once a day visit for the patient who went to a specialist office like neurology or something and was noted to be hypertensive but have no symptoms and was told, you must go to the emergency department right now. I I like the ones where they have papilledema and they show up in the emergency room or emergently because they have papilledema on an outpatient eye exam and they're like, I feel pretty good. Well, I think the article did an exceptionally good job of handling that specific problem. In the very beginning, the authors noted that there are a variety of diagnoses or terms, I should say, that we use in medicine. Things like hypertensive urgency, hypertensive crisis, and malignant hypertension, which I will admit I have used all three of those at some point in my career to justify doing something, all of which mean a whole bunch of nothing as far as hypertensive emergencies go, because the definition for hypertensive emergency is severely elevated blood pressure and end organ damage. And in the absence of end organ damage, you just have severe hypertension which is really what that hypertensive urgency, hypertensive crisis, and malignant hypertension are all addressing, just severely elevated blood pressure. And interestingly, there's significant variability on what we call severely elevated blood pressure. 
if you're looking at the European Society of Cardiology, American Heart Association, neurosurgical colleagues, the stroke research, the ACS research, depending on what form of disease you're talking about, even if you're looking at pregnant patients, preeclampsia, patients who have eclampsia, the blood pressure guidelines differ. So I liked that the authors settled on severe hypertension as being a systolic blood pressure over 180 or a diastolic over 110. Those are some familiar numbers we've seen, and we'll get to why that's familiar later. But I like that we can at least agree that severe hypertension consists of a systolic more than 180 and a diastolic more than 110. And to that, I liked and I felt somewhat reassured from my practice that they also focused more on map in this article. And they said, look, if you can get a map, that is something that you should look at. So that number stuck with me that a map over 135 should be a warning number of the few numbers I can hold in my rapidly aging brain. That was a number that I was like, okay, now that's going to be something where I stop when I'm looking at the patient's vitals for the first time and say, oh, with that map of 140, 150, like that's, that's really, really something that I might need to start titrating right now because that's, it's too high, especially if there's any sign of end organ damage on my exam. I'm going to pause there for one second. Those little auto machines that check blood pressure in the department, mm -hmm. do you know how those actually work? In the article, they said they measure MAP directly and estimate systolic and diastolic, which I did not know at all. And something that I found completely mind-blowing, I will say, I had no idea this was the case. I will just admit my ignorance right now. Just the two of us, no one else is listening. The auto blood pressure cuffs they talk about in the article, these oscillometric devices directly measure mean arterial pressure and then spit out a calculated systolic and diastolic blood pressure number based on some kind of algorithm. So the authors in the article made a point of saying that it's more accurate to use mean arterial pressure. And if you're using one of these auto devices, the device is actually directly measuring mean arterial pressure and just calculating systolic and diastolic anyway. So you are better equipped to just use what the device is measuring directly and use that as a gold standard for your department rather than trying to titrate to either a systolic or a diastolic because it makes it easier for your staff member to titrate to one number. And I had to go look this up, but it turns out that these oscillometric devices are actually measuring the oscillations from the blood vessel walls during the cuff deflation. And the maximal oscillation point is actually the mean arterial pressure. So it is indeed measuring directly the mean arterial pressure and then spinning out a calculated systolic and diastolic based on that, which was mind-blowing for me. I always just assumed it was sensing oscillations, waiting for the oscillations to go away, actually calculating a mean arterial and directly measuring the systolic and diastolic. And it turns out it's actually backwards. And we should all be using mean arterial pressure because as we know, no emergency department in the country anymore uses manual cuffs. And when you need one, you're never going to be able to find one unless you're bringing one to work yourself. Yeah. I think this highlighted for me just how much the more you know about the tools that you have and the more you know about how they work, the better you could use them. And that goes for blood pressure cuffs, pulse oxygen, 
just about anything we do. Absolutely. And it always makes me feel better about ignoring the respirations on the monitor because that just all depends on where the patient's leads are on their chest. So true. So true. All right. So you were saying MAP of 135 and I was saying systolic and diastolic 180 over 110. That's what the authors are using as the definition for severe hypertension. Once again, they did a complete literature search, and I always love to throw these out because I'm a numbers guy, but they did a search which yielded 5,180 articles that they screened for a total of only 122 quality articles that were included in the review. And of those, they filtered down society guidelines, published evidence, randomized control trials, and filled this article full of information for each of the hypertensive emergencies, things that include acute coronary syndrome, that's the NSTEMI and STEMI, acute stroke, acute renal failure, pregnancy-induced preeclampsia, aortic dissection, and all of those major end-organ life-threatening diseases that you get from severely elevated blood pressure. All of those things fall under acute hypertensive emergency, and it's interesting to note that that's more of a large blanket diagnosis. Most of the time, we see somebody with a hypertensive emergency, we're thinking they come in with a remarkably elevated blood pressure plus a symptom, and then we're trying to figure out which of these other diagnoses they actually have. Rarely is it going to be just a diagnosis of hypertensive emergency. It's actually going to be, oh, you have an intracranial hemorrhage. Oh, you're having an acute ischemic stroke. Oh, you're actually having an aortic dissection. So if you can get to one of those diagnoses, that's far more accurate. But if you're still looking and you haven't found a reason, but you find evidence for end organ damage, then the hypertensive emergency diagnosis applies. And that's the nomenclature part of it. I did like on page four, table one, which if you're going to take away one table, right? I love it when somebody takes an entire chapter of evidence and summarizes it as one table. It is just, it's, ugh, it's like filet mignon inside this entire meal that is hypertensive emergencies defined by these authors. Table one lists for you each of the clinical presentations. So malignant hypertension without end organ damage, hypertensive encephalopathy, acute ischemic stroke, acute hemorrhagic stroke, acute coronary syndrome, pulmonary edema, aortic disease, and eclampsia. All of those diagnoses are listed in the table along with the timeline and target blood pressures, first-line treatments, and alternative treatments. It is the gold table for the entire article, and it's there on page four. It is something to definitely keep in your pocket. It, this, this table just reaffirmed my love of nicardipine as a drug. It just made me fear for the pharmacy supply of that drug because it made me want to reach for that more. But it also gave me pause that I did not come into this article with as much appreciation for labetalol and mm -hmm. some of the pharmacokinetics that make it such a good drug. And I think we'll talk more about that in, in treatment. But I, I felt like that was my takeaway, that those should be the first two drugs that I'm thinking about when I have too much blood pressure and I want to bring it down. And I gained a lot from that being the change to my toolkit. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Nicardipine, labetalol, clavidipine are probably the major first-line treatments that are referenced in most of those conditions. And then 
Other things like nitroprusside and metoprolol are discussed, but really not first-line agents. And, and we'll dive into that. The etiology and pathophysiology, it's a great section. I highly recommend reading it. We're not going to discuss it because figure one does an absolutely fantastic job of talking about the renin-angiotensin system, the endothelial dysfunction, and all of the other things that can lead to a sudden and rapid rise in blood pressure. And when we're talking about hypertensive emergencies, that's the thing that matters. So when you're doing your history and speaking with the patient and screening the person who was just found to be hypertensive at a clinic, even though the blood pressure is remarkably alarming, it's you know, 220 over 130, but they're sitting in front of you and they have no symptoms and they're not complaining of anything. These are the kinds of questions you need to be asking. Like, are you supposed to be on medication? When did you run out of it? When's the last time you took any of it? Why are you not taking it? What kind of side effects are you having? that are preventing you from taking it? Or can you not afford it? Do you have other problems, things like chest pain or abdominal pain? Are you peeing blood? Have you had problems with your vision? Interestingly, headache does not count as end organ damage. A little bit of proteinuria might actually be a chronic finding. And EKG changes can also be chronic. So having an old EKG to look and compare will help you greatly when you're looking at things like the changes of LVH and will help you screen for who actually has an acute problem and who doesn't. So if they're just presenting with hypertension and headache, sure, treat them, but maybe not pull out the IV nicardipine infusion in that case, if that's all they've got going on. Yeah, I think, as you said, there's so many different facets to what can cause hypertension and then what can lead to a hypertensive emergency. I feel as though this was... One of those moments where the old wisdom from your attendings that have been doing this a long time kicked in. One of my favorite classic attending adages from residency was just make sure the patient has their home medication. And that sounds pretty simple, but that goes for a lot of things. Like, are they taking their blood pressure medicines? Are they really taking them or are they taking half the dose because they can't quite afford them? Do they take other medicines? Are those medicines prescription or something else? Are they an alcoholic? Are they withdrawing from opiates? There's so many things that can make their blood pressure go up. You need yeah. to consider what factors are leading into that so that you can try to address that as part of your strategy to, to safely bring their blood pressure down. And just to complicate matters, when we talk about severely elevated blood pressure and the rate of change, knowing whether or not they have chronic hypertension makes a big difference in that conversation because someone who is typically normotensive with a normal blood pressure coming in with a blood pressure 180 to 190 may already have end organ damage while someone who lives at 200 or 220 every day for the last 10 years could tolerate 230, 240, 250 and have no end organ damage. So it really does matter whether or not they have that chronic history and if this has been a very slow adjustment over time or if this was a rapid change. It's the rapid change scenario that we are most concerned about. In patients presenting to the emergency department, with primarily hypertensive emergencies, a secondary cause was found in about 20 to 40%, according to the study that they cited in the paper, which is an interesting note because you'd think it would actually be higher. At least for me, I thought that number was going to be higher. So that's why we have that blanket diagnosis of hypertensive emergency when we don't specifically find a hemorrhage or an ischemic stroke or acute renal failure or something of that sort. And I thought that number was going to be higher because typically I expect that when we're dealing with someone with critical hypertension and end organ damage, 
it shouldn't be that hard. The donut of truth is usually pretty good about revealing a diagnosis, whether that's ischemic stroke or a hemorrhage or aortic dissection. The, the donut of truth for listeners is the CT scan. There's no lack of CT use in the emergency department. I'm starting to appreciate more the tunnel of truth, though, because no, when you're looking at these, there are times where your CT is negative, but then you get your MRI from the tunnel of truth. And now all of a sudden, the answer is clear. This is just posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome That's right. well, or whatever press is that I, that I need to now be more aware of if I only had time to get my, more of my stat MRIs. There you go. Pre-hospital care, as we always talk about, is important not only for providing information to the rest of the team in the emergency department, but also for initiating therapy. So if you're on the pre-hospital team and you can discern one of the actual specific causes, like they're having chest pain, ACS, ST elevation, or they're pregnant and had a seizure, or they have a sudden onset of headache and they got a blown pupil or whatever, you can tell from the examination that they have one of these sub-diagnoses that's very specific. You can initiate therapy for that and the therapy varies. So for chest pain, you're giving nitroglycerin. If they're pregnant, you might be giving them IV magnesium. If they're presenting with severe headache and a blown pupil, then you're giving them everything you can to lower their blood pressure in that scenario. So those kinds of things are very important. But also, if you're picking them up for hypertension and a headache and they've got a bag full of pills, bringing those along is helpful because then we can work through that in the emergency department and figure out what they're out of and what they haven't been taking. So pre-hospital care becomes very important in that scenario. I think when our pre-hospital providers call me and ask me for advice about these patients, I try to encourage them to use short-acting medications because I think that committing to a long-acting medication in these patients is something that you should approach cautiously. So I tend to encourage them to try some nitrates and try pain control, something short-acting like fentanyl, and then see what happens if they're close and they can get there. But having been in the rural places when they're further out, the more that you can start treatment, the better it can be. I would consider something like Lasix in a patient that had a history of heart failure if the patient was an hour, even more, maybe away, and EMS was basically going to do CPAP and nitro on the way. I'd consider that in that case, and I think there's got to be some consideration of distance and, and time of transport. But the biggest thing I took away from this was I need to do a better job of asking in a delicate but reliable way whether or not the patient is using sildenafil or tadalafil before I start them on my hydrose nitroglycerin because I don't think that I'm regularly making sure that they're not going to be someone that's more at risk to drop their pressure real fast because of those medications. Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't really, it doesn't have to be a, a lengthy conversation. If you say it in a matter of fact scenario as, hey, have you used any of these erectile dysfunction drugs in the last 24 hours because I'm going to give you some nitroglycerin and that interacts with these medicines, it can cause life-threatening problems. If it's just stated as matter of fact, yes or no, then, then typically people are pretty forthcoming. I do agree with you though, that the treating pain also is critically important, even if it's with something short acting like fentanyl. How many times have we seen patients passing kidney stones come in with critically high blood pressure because oh they're just in the worst pain of their life? So treating pain alone can sometimes just bring that blood pressure down. So, you know, being aware of what else is going on with the patient is very, very important. One of my cardiologists in medical school told me that when you look at a patient with extremely high blood pressure and you're thinking of how you're going to treat it, you need to use that as a resource that you're going to expend. And you need to choose the drugs that you're going to give them to bring their pressure down to, to consider exactly what 
combination of things you want to give them and make sure that you're doing it in the priority order that you want it to be. That's pretty smart advice right there. When they get to the department and you're doing your history, there are some other elements that are important to elicit, like what medications they're taking, not just for blood pressure, but if they're on a monoamine oxidase inhibitor or some kind of serotonergic medication, those become important historical elements when we're talking about their past medical history, trying to find out if they have any history of organ dysfunction, chronic kidney disease, dialysis, prior hemorrhage or stroke. These kinds of things are helpful because you're going to be screening them for all this stuff. And if they have a chronic history of this and you stumble upon an abnormality in a lab or on an EKG, it's very helpful to know, okay, this is not new. I need to keep looking. Also, if they have a history of chronic pain that's being untreated, if they're pregnant, that is a very, very important piece of information to elicit. I have a memory burned into my brain of treating a 15-year-old who came in with seizures, who had seized pre-hospital, did not regain consciousness, came in a little altered. We're in the midst of working her up for nuanced seizures. She was stable. Mom is with her. No, no medical history whatsoever. Has a second seizure in the department. We treat it. It stops. We get her to CT. We bring her back from CT. She has a third seizure and then delivers a baby. And no one knew she was pregnant. And so, you know, those kinds of things do happen. And making sure that someone isn't pregnant is exceptionally important because the algorithm changes and the treatment changes immediately once you realize this person's pregnant. I'm never going to forget that case. So that becomes a, a very, very important historical piece of information. Rapid pregnancy tests work with urine or blood. All you need to do is dilute the blood a little bit and put it on there and it'll tell you just as fast as the urine will. And I would tell you that having that in your back pocket when you're like, well, we don't have the urine yet. All you got to do is call the lab and tell them to give you a real quick rapid positive or negative. And that can, as you said, very quickly change your approach to the seizing female patient. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. One other thing to add from this section, I, I think especially when we're talking about hypertension, looking at whether or not they've got any cough or cold meds in their system and whether or not they're aware that, uh, that Sudafed or phenylephrine can raise their blood pressure. And also I just, everybody, I ask everybody now the same thing. I tend to lead with THC, but I ask if they're using any other drugs like THC or cocaine or anything else. And I find that way too frequently people will be like, oh yeah, I used cocaine the other day. Yeah. So, and they're not young. They're like 75 years old using cocaine. And I'm thinking, how did you make it to 75 using cocaine and methamphetamines? But yes, you're absolutely right. It's, it's much more common than we would think. And it always catches me by surprise when someone over the age of 70 is using cocaine. 100% of the time, I am surprised. When it comes to physical exam, the authors made a good point of the correct manner in which to check a blood pressure. And again, this is something I would say we do maybe a half a percent of the time in the emergency department. But the correct way to measure a blood pressure is first with an appropriate sized cuff, which, you know, if we're lucky enough to have one these days, that's very, very helpful. Second, the patient is in a resting position, seated comfortably with the back supported, legs uncrossed, and all clothing covering the cuff area removed. I would say that happens exactly a half a percent of the time. In the yeah, this, this made me feel good in my heart, Sam, because when I have a patient that's got a blood pressure that seems kind of labile and it's high and it's low, I'll go in there. I will take the cuff off, roll their sleeve up, get down to the skin and then make sure it's the cuff size I want and then put it back on 
and measure it real good. And then I come back and I move it to their other arm. And I just, that there's every time that I do that, I get more clarity and occasionally their pressures are vastly different. And I say, boy, it seems like we need to go to the CT scanner now. Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. That's right. The patient's arm should be supported at the heart level and measurements above and below this level can give misleading readings. So if you're not supporting the arm at the heart level, expect the measurements to be different. You know, typically nowadays we're applying a blood pressure cuff and walking out of the room and it cycles every so many minutes. So you have no idea what position the patient is in when it's going off. I have so many times walked into a room where the cuff alarm has gone off because now they're hypotensive and it turns out they just rolled over. They're on their right side as their left arm up and they're lying on their right side and they're asleep. And you go, oh, okay, well, lay them flat. Let's sit them up. Let's check it again. And now it's normal. And we go, I'm sorry, ma'am. I didn't mean to wake you up. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, it's crazy that we don't do these measurements correctly, but it's, it's very, very common. I think in our defense, I think there's a clinical gestalt of the people that are well and are happily chomping on a sandwich and look wonderful and and they're here for other complaints. But the patient where you're worried about their blood pressure, I think at a subconscious level at this point now in my career, if they've given me a couple of reliable readings, I walk in the room and I'm talking to them and I'm I'm building that rapport, but then I'm putting the blood pressure cuff on while we're still talking. And like you said, I'll cycle it and then make them hold still and make sure I get a good reading. And then I have a better sense walking out of the room of if this person's heading in the right direction or the wrong direction, or if I need to put my friend nicardipine to work. Exactly right. Going hand in hand with that is just allowing the patient to sit quietly and rest and maybe getting multiple readings instead of just the one out in triage where it is the most uncomfortable after they've been sitting in the waiting room. So maybe taking them into a quiet place letting them relax and then rechecking the blood pressure in a few minutes. Sometimes that will make a significant difference. And then in this same section with the physical exam, as we mentioned already, the authors talked about mean arterial pressure and how it can actually be easier to use that opposed to a systolic and diastolic cutoff. Because if you're asking a nurse to titrate to a specific number and you're giving them two numbers to titrate to, how are they going to know, well, what if the systolic drops to normal, but the diastolic is still high and what am I supposed to do here? much easier to say we're using the map. And it turns out your auto cuff is measuring the map directly. When we talk about the common symptoms that you might encounter with a hypertensive emergency, the most common things are things like shortness of breath, chest pain, headache, maybe altered mental status or confusion, and then focal neurologic deficits. Those are all listed there in table three. And the most common sequelae of hypertension-induced end organ damage would be things like pulmonary edema or heart failure, ischemic stroke, acute coronary syndrome, hemorrhagic stroke, the aortic syndromes like aortic dissection. Those are a little bit more rare, maybe 2%. And then hypertensive encephalopathy, also a little bit more rare. So those are the kinds of diagnoses we're looking for when we're screening patients for hypertensive emergencies. I also think in these there's a significant overlap with some of these things. I felt like when I was in residency, there was this sense as a resident that you had to decide, was it heart failure or was it COPD? And there's a lot of overlap with these diseases. So there's nothing wrong with giving a little steroid, giving a little breathing treatment and starting a little bit of nitro or trying to diarrhea the patient. And also, as I got into yesterday with a patient, I had a patient with chest pain and neurosymptoms. And I thought, maybe this is a dissection. I still yeah. call it stroke alert. And the neurosurgery team was like, but if you think it's dissection, why does it need a stroke alert? And I said, what if it's not? 
a dissection. <laughs> then, then I might have to just worry about just a stroke. And they said, oh, that's a good point. That reminds me of the stroke alert patient I saw who had an intracranial hemorrhage. And then the neurosurgeon called me and said, well, I'm going to admit this patient because they have an intracranial hemorrhage. However, but. when they had their CT angiography, the patient also has an aortic dissection. And I'm going to need your help to try and figure out what I'm supposed to do with that. And I went, oh, this is really, really bad news. Esmolol, uh, maybe nicardipine. Let, yeah. I, I do one of these where I, I turn the phone over and I let the, the CT surgeon and the neurosurgeon talk oh, to each other. Yeah. Unfortunately, in that case, the CT surgeon came in, saw the patient, and she succumbed to her illness within about 24 hours. And there was just no, there was no saving her. And it was the craziest thing because she was awake, talking with pretty minimal deficits from her intracranial hemorrhage, but now was being told she had this life-threatening diagnosis in her chest she was completely unaware of that was going to lead to her death very, very quickly. And it was one of those scenarios where would you rather just be dead and gone or would you rather know, hey, you've got maybe 15, 16 hours and then you're going to be gone. So if you need to make some calls, now is the time. It was just, oh, I still get chills thinking about that case. It was terrible. But back to physical exam. When we're talking about physical examination, the authors did mention the retinal changes, fundoscopic examinations, and made a very interesting point that there's currently no guidelines or significant evidence to suggest whether all patients who are being evaluated for hypertensive emergency should get a fundoscopic examination. So really the determination or the decision to proceed with such an examination is provider dependent. And then once you do see something, then you've got to figure out, okay, is this an acute problem? And is it because of their hypertension or is this a chronic longstanding problem as a result of chronic longstanding hypertension? You know, is it actually an emergency from a sudden change? And sometimes that can be challenging. I, I think on this perspective, I think if they have any ocular symptoms, I'm trying to make sure that they're going to get a follow-up because of just the need to manage diabetic retinopathy, hypertensive retinopathy. And I think that that's something that can usually wait a couple of days. But if this is someone that's either just going to get observed and then going home in a day or two, I'm trying to make sure that that's going to happen for them and making sure that they're aware they need to follow up for an eye exam. But I think more importantly, I am excited that at some point in our careers, there is going to be a camera for my iPhone that I can hold up to the patient's eye in the darkness, and it will take a picture in high definition of the back of their eye for me by tracking their retina and doing some wonderful computer stuff. And I will be able to look at my phone, know exactly what the back of their eye looks like, text a picture to ophthalmology, and everyone will be so excited about wow. pictures that I have. Because right now, trying to get a picture through the not dark emergency room ophthalmoscope is an amusing prospect at best. Totally. I can't wait. I cannot wait. I do that now with ultrasound images. I capture them and then send them to the ophthalmologist and say, look, here, it's a retinal detachment. That's Here's right. your ultrasound image. But yes, someday, someday we will get that that retina scan as well. I've seen prototypes of these things and some of like <laughs> the, the stuff that's there. And I feel that that's coming. And I'm honestly excited for it because the leap that needs to be made of how to get that to focus and the lens you need to use it's just a matter of getting the cost down. It would be a really great thing to then say, hey, here's the name of the patient. Here's their picture. Set them up for follow-up in a day or two. That's right. That's and right. It is literally all about optics in this scenario. 
When it comes to diagnostic studies, so now we've done our history and our examination and we're still worried they've got some kind of hypertensive emergency and we're ready to move on to diagnostics. The patients who present with a blood pressure over that 180 over 110 cutoff without signs and symptoms of a possible hypertensive emergency should not, according to the authors, be subjected to routine diagnostics. So If they have no symptoms, you don't need a CT. You don't need to make them sit around for four hours to give a urine sample that you're going to lose and accidentally send to the wrong department in the tube system. And you don't need to stick them for blood because they have no symptoms. All you have to do is ensure they have adequate follow-up. And if they're out of some medication, you can certainly refill it and maybe even give them a dose if they are not going to be able to get to the pharmacy till tomorrow. But you don't have to subject them to anything else. According to the authors, it is well documented that evaluating for end organ damage in asymptomatic patients does not change ED management, nor does it improve outcomes, the part that we care the most about. It does, however, increase the likelihood for unnecessary hospitalizations, which is a fantastic paragraph. It is very well stated. Don't treat asymptomatic hypertension in the emergency department like it's an emergency. It's okay to talk to them and screen them and make sure they have what they need, but you don't have to chase it down with any of those fancy diagnostics. Yeah. I think the wisdom of just restart their home meds here, if you can figure out what they're on and that's all it is that they're missing their home medication. I've recently come around that I'm excited for the era of patients to have all their medical records and access to more things, not for them to necessarily interpret it, but for them to log in and then hand me their phone. Because if I could basically see their last report, their list of their medications from an updated, reliable source from their primary, and I didn't have to ask all of the EMRs to talk to each other from all the offices, all I needed was the patient to have access to their records, that alone would make it so much easier to have a clear sense of what medicines this person is on for sure and what would be the next best step for me to take. Dream on, my friend. Dream on. I like that dream. It's coming true. Patients have access to their portals and and they've been showing records on their devices recently. That's very helpful. Help me help you, patients. Get your records and then just hand them to me. I'll take it. When it comes to labs, the authors recommended some things that seem pretty common sense. So basic chemistry panel, you're looking for creatinine, urinalysis, microscopy, you're looking for changes there that can show you glomerular filtration rate problems like proteinuria, red blood cells in the urine, cellular casts, a complete blood cell count, like a CBC. I mean, these, again, seem very, very obvious, but you're looking for critical anemias, thrombocytopenia, anything indicative of a microangiopathic hemolytic process, a lactate dehydrogenase level, and a haptoglobin. Now, when's the last time you ordered these in your hypertensive emergency patient? I was going to say COVID. We were doing LDHs during COVID, but I I found this, though. I I like to reach the point in the article where I'm like, yeah, they lost me. This was the point where I was like, now, now, if it was a patient with hemolysis, and it was really bad hemolysis. I'm going to talk to Hemonk and say, hey, is there any other labs you want me to get started? It's late. The patient's going to be here overnight. Is there anything else that's going to help you tomorrow? But I can't tell you that's the regular thing that I'm ordering. Yeah. I do find that in the sake of clear communication, I tend to always tell nurses my doses for medications in single digits. Like I want one five of insulin, not five zero, because 50 and 15 sound similar. I always ask for a B. NP or a BMP as a B Mary P or a B Nancy P because I find that then they know that the letter that I'm talking about and are more likely to make sure that they've got the right labs. No, that's an excellent point. 
And to the author's credit, the lactate dehydrogenase level and the haptoglobin level are mentioned specifically for people who are, you're trying to determine the degree of hemolysis. So, you know, if their hemoglobin is normal, you don't need to order those tests. You just got to remember to go back and add them if you're not going to order them up front. I like their aspiration for the dream emergency room where we have the time to do all the things and everything is just the bow is tied up perfectly. I like it. I like it. Point of care glucose testing, especially if they have altered mental status or a possible stroke. Troponin is important if you're entertaining acute coronary syndrome as a possibility. Just keep in mind that high sensitivity troponins are often elevated for multiple other reasons and that if you're going to order one, it's very helpful to know what their baseline one is or was before. It's also important to know that patients with elevated high-sensitivity troponins do have a higher risk of mortality, independent of other clinically relevant variables. So there is a prognostication from having a high troponin, and that's important, but it may not give you the hypertensive emergency diagnosis you're looking for. EKG in the grand scheme of things is also important because we have to rule out acute MI and acute coronary syndrome. Again, just keep in mind, people with chronic long-standing high blood pressure have things like LVH, which you're going to see on your EKG. So it's not going to be normal, but you're looking for the emergency part of it, things that suggest ischemia, and then imaging studies. And these are going to run the gamut depending on what you're looking for. A chest x-ray, if they're having shortness of breath or chest discomfort, you're looking for pulmonary edema, cardiomegaly, those kinds of things. Point of care ultrasound, if you're comfortable doing that, you can get a good look around the heart at the pericardium. You can even pick up an aortic dissection if you're exceptionally good at your skills. I would say that's not the majority of point of care ultrasound users today, but certainly you can get a suggestion that there's something going on there. One of our colleagues actually in the emergency department told me about a case she had where she did a point of care ultrasound on somebody she was a little concerned about and saw something unusual in the aorta, which led to a CTA and a diagnosis of dissection. So I was very proud of her. Actually, that was a really, really difficult pickup, but she did exceptionally well. A CT imaging of the brain is important. You're starting with the non-contrast, just like we do routinely. You're looking for the hemorrhage, but then you're going to go to more advanced imaging to look for things like ischemic stroke, large vessel occlusion. And then there is a discussion in the article there on page 11 about the sensitivity of CT to pick up hemorrhage within the first six hours. And it's really, it's exceptionally good. We're looking at 99.9% .9 if you're looking for hemorrhage within the first six hour window. Beyond that, it's a little less sensitive and you can have that conversation with the patient about lumbar puncture, whether or not to perform it, whether you're going to follow up with the CTA, that's kind of a little bit beyond the scope of our discussion today. But it's mentioned there on page 11. It's a good discussion. There's also some pictures. Figures 5 and figure 6 show what a typical CT scan of someone with intracranial hemorrhage will look like, some of the images there, and what some of the MRI findings of someone with vasogenic edema look like when they have press syndrome. That's the posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome which can be present actually with or without hypertension, frustratingly. And so it can be a challenging diagnosis to make, but MRI is the gold standard for identifying that. You're not going to see that on CT. One, one brief point I wanted to make in the case, just in, in defense of ultrasound, I think that a lot of times that there's so many things you can do with an ultrasound right now when you're looking at these patients, but you start getting into, are you doing an echo at the bedside? Are you really looking at their, yeah, if you're looking at this, I find for these dyspneic patients, I just try to keep it simple. I want to pop the probe on their chest. Do they have B lines or not? Because there's sometimes where I can't decide if it's 
Is it more respiratory or is it more cardiac? And if there's beelines, I feel much better about going more the direction of treating their pulmonary edema. And then if there's fluid around their heart or if their EF is really down, that's really going to change how I'm going to approach their blood pressure and the things I'm going to use to control it. I find that 30 seconds you can manage that in, that can make big differences. And I think there's a lot of value there that we need to start getting closer to as these ultrasound devices get smaller and smaller. Yeah, I agree. That kind of focused use, answering a specific question that's going to give you the most bang for the buck, that's a perfect place for ultrasound use. You can also use ultrasound for papal edema, measuring that optic nerve sheath diameter when you do your ocular examinations as a surrogate for increased intracranial pressure and cerebral edema. That can certainly be performed as well. So if that's something you're entertaining and there's going to be some delay in obtaining your imaging, absolutely you could do that. It's not a replacement for the imaging, but it can give you an early heads up for sure that that's what you're dealing with. I think that would push me over the top if I was really on the fence and there was that patient that was altered and I couldn't put a pin on it. And the only thing I found was that their optic nerve was distended and I was concerned that their pressure was real high. And I think I'd be more interested in doing that LP sooner, even in the emergency part. Absolutely. And then when it comes to treatment, these are all very diagnosis specific. So we start with heart failure decompensated heart failure. And again, you know, you're going down your ABCs. The first thing you're going to do is support their breathing, whether that's with some kind of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation or just supplementary oxygen. You got to make sure they're breathing okay. There is a good discussion about diuretics and the dosing for diuretics. So there is evidence from a large multicenter perspective registry called the Reality AHF registry that demonstrated that Patients who got doses of IV furosemide within the first hour of arrival had a threefold lower in-hospital mortality than those who received it later than that. But there were some significant baseline differences, and there's a great discussion in that article about how applicable that really is to a real-world setting in an emergency department because of some of the limitations of the study. So early diuretic use, we think, is beneficial if you have it, and if you think about it, you should be giving it. The European guidelines from 2021, the European Society of Cardiology, and the 2022 American Heart Association guidelines do recommend using loop diuretics for people who look like they have volume overload and note that they provide the most rapid and effective diuresis for the patient with acute decompensated heart failure. So if they look like they're fluid overloaded, by all means give it. The general recommendation is an IV dose that's somewhere between one to two times their normal oral equivalent. So if they're taking 40 milligrams of furosemide daily, you're going to give them 80 a dose up front in the emergency department. And if you give them a dose and it doesn't help in the first hour, then you're going to repeat that dose and give them a second one if they're not having appropriate urine output and responding like you expect them to. The way I think about these patients is I think that diuretics help them. But I think that when you first meet them, usually their pressure's through the roof, they're sweating, they're really struggling to breathe. And I love high-dose nitrites for this, and then I love BiPAP for this. And once you get that under control, and this is what I'll tell the paramedics when they're like, well, I want to give Lasix in the field. I say, get them here, let's get them cooled off. And then when I get them basically calmed down, their pressure drops, you can see the sweat dries, their breathing slows down, they're more comfortable. I believe at that point, they're actually perfusing their kidneys. And then after, say, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, not an hour, but somewhere in that early quick window, once they're better, then I like to give the diuretic because I think that's when it's actually going to do the most benefit and probably the least amount of harm. Fair enough. The next section actually is vasodilator therapy. And there have been multiple large systematic reviews and randomized control trials that the authors cited 
demonstrating that vasodilators are safe and effective in lowering blood pressure in acute decompensated heart failure. Interestingly enough, they have failed to show any kind of consistent improvement in short or long-term survival, but we know they work just from real-world evidence. High-dose nitroglycerin intravenously is first-line agent, and when we talk about high dose, we're talking about an IV bolus and then an infusion. 600 micrograms to 4 milligrams can be administered over several minutes, followed by then an infusion. So that's your bolus up front. There's 600 mics to 4 milligrams. Now, your sublingual nitroglycerin, that 0.4 milligram dose that you're giving is 400 micrograms. So that's a 400 mic bolus they're getting under their tongue in the ambulance before they even come to you. So if you're starting your infusion without giving a bolus and you're starting it at something like 20 to 40 mics, you're not even giving them a tenth of what they got under their tongue in the ambulance. So keep that in perspective. We are looking at large boluses up front along with an infusion, and the infusion starts anywhere from 50 to 100 micrograms per minute and then is titrated very quickly to achieve what you need as far as a clinical response from the patient. And you've heard some of our critical care colleagues speak about this, where they're in the room, they're standing there with the patient, and they're waiting for the response. And the nurse and the doctor are going, where are we at? 100 mics. Okay, go to 140. Okay, go to 180. Okay, go to 200. All right, go to 220. All right, go to 300. And you're just, every few minutes, you're just escalating up and up and up and up until you finally start to see that blood pressure coming down and that breathing pattern easing on the BiPAP. And then you're going, okay, now we're getting to the place where things are a little bit more controlled. So let's hold here for a second. We've achieved that golden 20%, 15% reduction in systolic blood pressure. Let's wait and give it a little bit more time before we titrate up anymore. So I, I'll be honest, I go the other direction. When I walk into these patients and they've really got a giant blood pressure, like 240 over 140, and they're sweating, I'm going to put them on the BiPAP, which is going to decrease their pressure a little bit because it's sure. going to decrease their preload. So you, you have to always keep that in mind and watch and as you adjust the BiPAP to see if how much that affects their pressure. But I'll always ask the nurses, how high will you let me start the nitro grip? And I just love the variation in that answer. I love kind of the variation between hospitals of what the pumps are set at and what you're allowed to, to What's go the up. highest answer you've gotten? Uh, I mean, the, the, there's pumps that'll let you go to 400, 500. Like you can start mm -hmm. at 400 or 500. I think ours in our current shop are set at about 200. Yeah. And I think one of our partners is trying to lobby to get it pushed up a little higher. But I, I like to start, like you said, if you're giving them sublingual, they're getting 400 mics every five minutes. They're getting mm -hmm. a drip of about 80 if you're really timing it out at that. So I always tell residents, if you're not starting higher than 80, you're not even doing any better than the sublingual. So I like to start as high as I can. And then just like you said, then I sit there and I say, okay, where am I at now? Where am I at now? And then once you cool them off, then you titrate rapidly down and then you're going to your diuretic. And then you've basically made it so much better. We used to call this the 5 a.m. special in New York because in residency, these patients would always come in at five in the morning and you'd have to sign out at like sometime between six and seven. But they, if they were on the BiPAP, they were too sick for the floor and they had to get an ICU screen. But if they were off the BiPAP and already just on like a little bit of a nitro drip and some Lasix, if you get them off, then they could go up to the floor and do okay. Yeah. And we, used to, we used to give these people just a big heavy dose of nitrites and their Lasix and just really push them on the BiPAP and they would cool off in an hour or two and look great. Yeah, that's been my experience as well. There are some other agents you can use. Clavidipine is another one of those short-acting calcium channel blockers which I actually like. It's very easy to titrate, which makes it easier for the nurse, which I think is a huge benefit. Nice, solid, low 
rounded numbers without any decimals makes it very easy and less confusing to titrate. So that's certainly an option. And there is evidence that that's helped in hypertensive emergency with acute decompensated heart failure. So that's certainly an option. Other treatments that don't work. So this is historical, but if you are at a shop that is still talking about morphine, I'd be very surprised. But if you are, it should not be used in the management of patients with acute decompensated heart failure, specifically for heart failure. If you're treating pain, that's something else. But if you're looking at heart failure, thinking that morphine has any kind of venous effect in their breathing and such, there have been multiple studies that have shown that patients who receive that have an increased mortality risk, somewhere around five-fold higher. And so we're not giving morphine. There is a discussion with Nasiratide, which I remember actually when this was a popular drug yeah. and people were investing money into it and it was going to be the next golden thing. And it ended up tanking. And then the later evidence showed that it did not provide any clinical benefit and was significantly more likely to cause hypotension. So we don't use Nasiratide either. And so if you have any propensity to reach for either of those two, please don't. Your blood pressure targets, again, you're looking for a reasonable lowering of systolic blood pressure, 10 to 25% for the acute decompensated heart failure. You're not looking to get them to normal tension immediately. That is actually worse for the patient. That reality AHF study reported that patients in the ED whose systolic blood pressure was reduced by more than 25% had a higher mortality rate. So you're looking at 10 to 25% reduction. So if they come in at 220, a 10% reduction is about 22 millimeters of mercury. You're going to get them down to maybe 200 and keep them on the BiPAP and then wait a little while. You're not shooting for immediate reduction to normal. That's not good. The next diagnosis is acute ischemic stroke. And we've talked about this before on the podcast. There are actually EMP articles devoted just to ischemic stroke. So Please go and read those. They did an excellent job here of a quick review in the article talking about hypertensive emergencies. The number there is cut off 180 over 110, especially in someone who we're considering giving thrombolytics to. And so where our goal is to always get it less than that, if we're talking about an ischemic stroke, just like in all of these others, we're not looking to drive that blood pressure to normal. That's harmful for their cerebral perfusion and their long-term outcome. So we're just looking to get it under 180 for that thrombolytic candidate. And if they're not, then 220 over 120 is the guideline from the AHA. So permissive hypertension is okay in acute ischemic stroke for both the American Heart Association and the European Society guidelines. I just, to, the one point on this that I took away was if these stroke patients need blood pressure control, it's nicardipine or clavidipine if you've got it, but nicardipine is the easy titratable answer. If it's someone that you're trying to be a little more palliative with, someone that's not trying to go to an ICU and you think that just a dose of labetalol is going to be good for giving them some blood pressure control and you don't want them to be on a drip because of resources or because that's what the patient is is more geared towards, I think that's now my thinking on these is cardine for the ones that are really sick and I want to be really careful and labetalol and ones that we're trying to just do things to make them better and then just kind of see where we can go. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. If you're just trying to lower it immediately for a short duration, then yeah, a single dose of labetalol could certainly work. Also, if you're ordering nicardipine and it's got to come from a pharmacy, then it's going to be a one-hour delay. You could start the labetalol now and just give frequent dosing until you get nicardipine. So you definitely got options to use both there. 
when it comes to acute coronary syndrome, so these are the people having an MI in that hypertensive emergency category, then there are some blood pressure targets, but they really these are kind of soft, really. Acute hypertension in patients with ACS can signify good cardiac function, ironically, and can be a response to significant stress, according to the authors, and it's associated with improved outcomes. And so the AHA and the European Society of Cardiology, when they talk about STEMI management, they're using the same guidelines based on thrombolytic criteria. So it's systolic blood pressure over 180 or diastolic over 110 as guidelines and relative contraindications for fibrinolytics. So those are goals for blood pressure reduction acutely. It's safe to give them beta blocker therapy. Multiple randomized controlled trials have shown that the beta blockers can reduce recurrent myocardial infarction down the line and ventricular fibrillation and decrease the infarction size. But if you've got somebody who's not hypertensive, their systolic blood pressure is less than 120 or they're significantly elderly, they're age over 70, then those are the patients who were found to have a statistically significant higher risk for developing cardiogenic shock. So be careful in your STEMI patients when you're going to give beta blockers, make sure that their blood pressure is high and not normal or low because you're likely to push them over the edge acutely. Nitrates are certainly an option. We talked about that already with the heart failure, but the same drugs, same kind of therapy when we're talking about ACS. Both the AHA and the European Society guidelines say that IV nitrates for patients with STEMI who are hypertensive can be useful in the acute phase. The next diagnosis is intracranial hemorrhage. Now, there is more data here than there is for any of these other diagnoses. The intracranial hemorrhage has the most data actually supporting recommendations. And currently, the guidelines are to try and drive that blood pressure down to less than 140 systolic when the intracranial hemorrhage is recognized. And then maintaining that blood pressure somewhere between 130 and 150 throughout their hospitalization stay, but not less than 130. So we're looking for pushing that blood pressure down to the 130 to 150 range and then holding it there. And that's based on multiple studies. There is the very real possibility of causing iatrogenic hypotension, and that is significantly harmful for the patient and carries the highest mortality risk within the first six hours. So during that ED stay, in their most critical time, if you overshoot, you have the propensity to do some serious damage to the patient. So just please be aware of that. And that's why we talk about things like ease of dosing and titration with nurses, because it's very easy to overshoot, especially when you're dialing numbers into a pump and having to do mental calculations. That's the kind of things we try and avoid. Short-acting agents for blood in brain. Always, always. Things you can turn off if you overshoot. Subarachnoid hemorrhage, much like Intracranial hemorrhage, you're looking for a goal of systolic somewhere less than 160 to 180, depending if you're looking at AHA versus European Society guidelines. Our Neurocritical Care Society guidelines recommend a MAP instead of systolic goals. And they only recommend treating it if the MAP really gets over 110. So talk to your neurosurgical colleagues. This is not a hemorrhagic stroke. This is a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And then depending on the cause, they may have specific guidelines for you. And then if you're dealing with aortic dissection, then we're talking about reducing pulse rate and blood pressure. And this is where your esmolol comes in. So you make a diagnosis of aortic dissection, you're going to start them on esmolol IV to reduce their tachycardia. And then you're going to start something else to help with blood pressure if the esmolol by itself doesn't do the job. And here you've got a bunch of options again as well. Very, very similar to everything else we've talked about. So 
a nicardipine, clavidipine, and nitroprusside, although really nitroprusside is kind of going by the wayside nowadays, less and less of that being seen. And then the last two things are the patient with altered mental status. So hypertensive encephalopathy. Again, here, you're lowering the blood pressure with the goal of a maybe 20 to 25% reduction of MAP using some kind of short-acting titratable agent, a nicardipine or labetalol as first-line agents. And the goal is to just get that initial response and then to work on the rest while they're inpatient. Don't drop it too fast. Press syndrome is a specific kind of encephalopathy diagnosed usually by MRI and can be seen in hypertensive encephalopathy. But you got to be careful because it turns out that the presence of press syndrome is not always attributable to the patient's blood pressure, which can be quite frustrating. So you can get press syndrome in normotensive patients and even in hypotensive patients. And so the retrospective studies in that category have all shown really no difference in blood pressure in those diagnosed with press syndrome compared to controls. And additional steps you can take to identify causes for patients with press syndrome become very helpful because immunosuppressive therapy can do it, cytotoxic drugs can do it, autoimmune disorders can do it, renal failure can do it. Those are the things that make someone more likely to have press syndrome. It may not actually be their blood pressure causing it. And then the last category, the pregnant patient. So again, there's separate articles devoted to this population alone, but the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has specific guidelines for blood pressure management. These are tighter controls than you would see for things like stroke and thrombolytic therapy. So blood pressure 160 over 110 or higher confirmed by repeat within 15 minutes is enough to make that diagnosis in the setting of someone with pregnancy and symptoms. So if their blood pressure is 140 over 90 and they have accompanying thrombocytopenia, impaired liver function, renal insufficiency, pulmonary edema, new onset headache, visual disturbances, all of those things count as well. That's nicely detailed for us on page 15 there and should be strongly suggestive of preeclampsia. And then in that case, you're not just giving medication for blood pressure like hydralazine and labetalol. You're also starting the magnesium for seizure prophylaxis. One gram every five minutes, four to six grams. I always like to just reassure the nurses because when you're given that order, you got to be sure about it because they're like, I'm sorry, six grams of magnesium? And you're like, well, OB usually starts with four. They're like four within 30 minutes. So like, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's four to six within 15 to 30. And I think that's one every five minutes for that first 20 minutes and then see where you're at. Yeah, it's a four to six gram loading dose over the first 20 to 30 minutes and then an infusion of one to two grams an hour. And these people can get hypotonia, reduced tendon reflexes and require respiratory status monitoring and frequent exams and measurements of the urine output. So they're critically sick patients, but that magnesium dose can be quite alarming to nurses who don't work in obstetrics. There's a good discussion there about acute renal failure. And again, you have to know their baseline and what their history was. But yes, patients who have acute renal failure can certainly come in in hypertensive crisis and the same guidelines recommend the same medications. And so the same short acting medicines for rapid blood pressure control. And again, you're looking to reduce that by maybe 25% upfront. So you're not going to drive them down to normal. And then there's a good discussion of oral versus IV medications. So if you're treating hypertensive emergency, it is better for you to get rapid control of the patient with some kind of short-acting titratable medication than to give them oral meds because the oral meds aren't titratable. 
and we can't control absorption as well. We don't know when it's all going to kick in. We end up stacking the medicines because the first one didn't work. And then by the time the first one's kicking in, the second one's already in their system. And now we've driven the blood pressure down too low. It just gets to be a very frustrating experience. Arterial lines, you do those very often? It was just not something that was done in my residency, but so often we were looking at radial arterial lines. And I'm now finding that for the critically ill patient, I've reconsidered my approach to those. And the femoral arterial line is something that I am more apt to use. And especially in someone that's critically ill or I really need to know where their blood pressure is, I'm much quicker to drop those now than I was even a year or two ago. It's really changed for me since I've seen them pop up and get used for our trauma patients. I've had several of these scenarios where the patient's BMI was too high and they were measuring blood pressures in a calf or a forearm, and I didn't know how reliable that was at all. And I agree, the femoral approach is certainly an option. The arterial lines do have some significant problems like pain, obviously, but there's no specific evidence that says that the procedure is beneficial or necessary. But again, if you're having difficulty with your auto blood pressure cuff or your non-arterial measurements, then yeah, absolutely. This is a tool in your arsenal that you can use. It's very commonly used in the intensive care unit where patients are in bed and not mobile and not moving around, but definitely something to remember that you have the option to do. You do have to have someone who knows how to set it up for you. One of our partners described this to me the other day. If you've got a sick patient, like you said, someone that's obese or someone that's a terrible access and you're already putting in your sterile femoral central line just so you have access and you have multiple places to put drugs, instead of now thinking about it as like, oh, I need to gown and glove and do, you're already sterile and you're already in the groin, then you can basically just drop the femoral line for your arterial line as well while you're right there after you finish with the central line. And given that that adds maybe five, maybe 10 minutes if it's, it's difficult and slow, that seems like a pretty high yield use and a quick add-on to make that an even more stable patient when they get upstairs. Yeah, now you can dialyze them from there too. I mean, draw out of the arterial, put it back in the venous and stick them on the dialysis machine, start some ECMO. I mean, come on, got, think of the got, possibilities. You've got your AV access, like <laughs> now there's a lot you can do. Absolutely. Well, it's, always, it's always that question of which patient is that best fit to, and I think that's a great decision for the clinician at the bedside. And then, of course, no discussion about high blood pressure and medication would be complete if we didn't mention beta blockers and cocaine-induced hypertension. So this was mantra that was taught to me in residency and mantra that I still hear, that the use of beta blockers in patients with cocaine and severe hypertension is contraindicated. The authors nicely say that it's controversial, that there's medical folklore teaching that there's a theoretical risk for unopposed alpha adrenergic stimulation when using beta blockers in conjunction with cocaine use, leading to unopposed vasoconstriction. The way they state it is the belief is founded on a small number of studies and case reports that have not been replicated and were based mostly on adverse patient-reported events with very few statistically relevant data. And to date, the only statement that can really be made is that unopposed alpha stimulation after beta blockade in cocaine toxicity is inconsistent, unpredictable, and a rare phenomenon. And I like that they go on to say it can easily be addressed with the use of vasodilating medications (laughs) that can be titrated. So if you want to use a beta blocker, just use a beta blocker if it's the best medication for the patient. And then you may need to be prepared to start something else if you notice a sudden spike in blood pressure. But just know that it's mostly folklore. Ask about cocaine, ask about whether or not they're using erectile dysfunction meds, do your best, forget the rest. There you go. 
time and cost-effective strategies. I thought this section actually was very helpful. So patients with no evidence of hypertensive emergency do not need blood pressure management and can be discharged with primary care follow-up. I think that depends on the degree of their hypertension. Like if it's really off the charts, I do find that I'm, I'm looking to start something, whether that's something they were on before or considering even calling their primary to ask about starting something. But I think that that's true. The vast majority of patients, they need to go home. They need to measure their blood pressure over time and they need to consider cutting down on the salt in their diet and then seeing their primary care doctor. Yeah, the uh, caveat there being making sure they have a primary care doctor and someone they're going to follow up with. I'll tell and, you, I, I went and researched what primary care physicians do and, and first-line medications for hypertension and made myself a little pocket note, and I keep that with me. And I, I really have no qualm about starting somebody on medication because I figure, hey, I'm a doctor. Their primary is a doctor. I'm capable of picking a medicine. And if for some reason it didn't work, the primary can follow it up. I totally agree they're going to need to be titrated, but I don't think there's anything mysterious about which medication to start them on. I just start them on something. Epistaxis, proteinuria, chronic renal failure, and headaches do not qualify as signs of target and organ damage. Mm -hmm. I always like to reassure patients about this, but at the same time, it's always this balance of trying to convince them that everything is okay, doing as little as you can to achieve that. But sometimes there does seem like you have to show them a little blood or a little urine for them to feel convinced that everything is okay. But I think that you should feel empowered that these kind of patients that come in with those kind of symptoms and elevated blood pressure, you control their symptoms, you see if just with symptom control, you can get their blood pressure down. And then you talk about primary care follow-up and go on from there. I did find this interesting that troponin elevation is not associated with an increase in mortality in hypertensive emergency and does not need to be routinely obtained if there is no concern for ACS. I would, I would find that having been in many hospitals, if I was admitting all my hypertensive urgencies and did not have a troponin or two to show a trend to the hospital doctors, they would not be pleased with that situation. Yeah. Oh. They did say in the caveat that, the, keep in mind the atypical presentations, so the elderly, the female, the diabetic population. So yeah, I think we so liberally get troponins that I would be surprised if someone made it to the inpatient setting for a hypertensive emergency and didn't have a troponin. And I think one troponin is necessarily, because sometimes they'll be a little up, but it's really what that trend now in, in the current age we're in. Yes. Because if that troponin jumps dramatically, then it does merit, like, is there something ischemic happening in addition to what I'm seeing here? Or if it's a stable troponin that's slightly elevated, then yes, that is secondary to the hypertensive emergency, and we can just treat the hypertension and then follow along and see. Absolutely. There is, as always, a great risk management pitfalls section. A few things I wanted to bring to light from that section. First, metoprolol is a beta blocker, but it's beta-1 receptor selective. So if you're looking to target blood pressure, you're using labetalol, not metoprolol, unless there's some specific role for that that you're trying to treat in ACS. So if you're looking to crank down blood pressure, you should be giving labetalol. Don't give metoprolol. Second, there's often more than one compounding variable contributing to the patient's hypertension and failing to treat something like pain or agitation or withdrawal can sometimes lead you to start more than one agent at a time and notice that the treatment's just not working. So if your initial treatment is aggressive and not working, you're probably missing something. Third, not considering volume depletion as a cause of hypertension because of intravascular volume depletion due to renin-angiotensin system activation and sodium excretion is a mistake. And using bedside ultrasound can be helpful in that specific scenario to see if their 
volume depleted and need IV fluids. And just because their pressure is high doesn't mean they're not low on fluid. And lastly, trying to transition from an antihypertensive infusion to an oral agent is something that should be done gradually under frequent monitoring over the course of days and not to be undertaken in the ED in most scenarios, unless they've been boarding in your ED for days. <laughs> so something to keep in mind when that patient has responded well, if you're getting pushback from your admitting colleagues that it's just time to give them some orals and send them home, that's not the right answer. I'll meet them in the middle sometimes and give them some oral and let them go upstairs, but it's not an orals and home kind of situation. There you go. And that's the end. So thanks again to Dr. Davis, Dr. Hughes, Dr. Pun, and Dr. Goldstein for authoring yet another outstanding article in the series for emergency medicine practice. This is the June article, which will be online. You've got CME credits, four hours you can get for listening to this podcast, going and reading the article and answering the questions, and then the interactive version of the pathway that's in here that will lead you down the path to try and discern is it their heart, their kidneys, their brain, aorta, will be online soon. Those are all available free currently. So clinicalpathways.ebmedicine.net. Now we're up to 61 pathways that are available for free. So go check that out. And of course, if you're listening to the podcast, leave us a rating in whatever store you're listening to. TR, thanks again. Appreciate your input as always. Great to be here. Glad to run through one more of these with you. Looking forward to next month. Until next time, everyone, be safe. <laughs>